Hi, I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and you're listening to the Driven by Design Made for People podcast. Joining me is Kirsten Mann. Hi, Mark. Kirsten, what are we going to be talking about today? I think we're going to be talking about amazing applications, but also how this technology is changing people's lives. So we're here at Pause Fest, so the room's a bit boomier and livelier than it normally is, and we've also got a couple of people who are going to play with us. Who have we got? We've got Barbara Hyman. Hi, Barb. Hi, Kirsten. <laughs> so, Barbara, we're a little bit more hyped up than you. you are, you're sitting in a zen position here, chilled out with your Patterns That Matter t-shirt on, which we're going to dig right into. And we've also got Mike, Mike Briggs. Hi. So, Mike, you're from Telstra Purple. You go help Telstra's clients and sometimes Telstra to go work out how to apply the biggest technology stack in the country and actually make it that it's made for people. Is that a fair summary? That's, that's pretty much accurate. Okay, put it on your business card and send me the royalties. Um, but uh, but listen, what we're going to do is we're actually going to be talking about some really novel ideas around, around technology. I'm going to be talking about how medicine is going to change in the coming decade. I'm also going to be talking about food. And in food, I'm going to be talking about how robotics are actually changing the way that farmers are doing everything that they do. And we're also going to be talking about farm-free because farm-free is probably going to be something that we'll be very familiar with in 10 years' time, but at the moment you're probably not even aware of what that concept is. Kirsten, what are you going to dig into and what topics are you going to be talking about? I'm going to basically be highlighting how the construction industry, some of the technology that's changing, the efficiencies there that hasn't really been realised for the last 10 years, and you've got but some they're just local... kind of leapfrogging now. And you've got some local heroes here, Fologram, that we're going to be talking about. We've got about. Fologram, we've got um, Hello Builder, and we've got Realware as well. Okay, so Barb, what are you going to be talking about today with us? I'm going to be talking about the decisions that matter the most to all of us, um, which I think are two things, who you choose to spend your life with um, and who you choose to spend your daytime with from a work perspective. And we're not very good at making those decisions. If you look at things like the divorce rates um, and how often people change jobs, and I think there's a lot of signs that we can bring to help us make better decisions in both of those areas. So the first area that you've really dug into is how can you help how businesses are making decisions on who they hire and also whether candidates want to really work for this organisation because it's a two-way street, isn't it? It is, and I think part of what's really hard in recruitment and the same also in partnering is there's so much asymmetry of information. You know, in partnering what's happened is you've got the emergence of Tinder, and people are just making decisions on visuals. Um, but in the world of recruitment, actually, that doesn't matter as much, though there obviously is still a fair amount of bias around what people look like. Um, what matters much more is fit. You know, is this a place that's going to make me feel amazing, where I'm going to really learn, I'm going to be surrounded by great people? And it's incredibly hard to do that. And mostly who has all the information is the organisation. And you as a candidate don't have a lot. So there is no reason why you shouldn't just make all of that information and data transparent to everyone because you're both better off having the most amount of information to make the most informed decision. And so that's what effectively we're passionate about is helping people find their best place to work and helping organisations find their best people. Okay, so for those of you that are in stable jobs, I won't ask you to put your hands up because nobody will respond, um, but for those people who are in a stable job, the way that hiring works now is that there's these really bad CV parsing engines where if you say... I'm not a mechanical engineer, you'll still turn up as a candidate because it said mechanical engineer. The parsing engine doesn't understand not a mechanical engineer. And then that means that people know how to game the system. And they're doing things like they're putting in, in white text, in small font on their CV, things that then get machine read that shouldn't be machine read. So, you know, it's the same as search engine optimization. It's a bad field. It never really worked. But you've decided that there's actually more that could be done to alleviate that because you're getting into a conversation. So humanising, you know, recruitment, right? Like if this is all about how do you make technology really human is, um, you know, do you really want to be sitting on a system and plugging in a whole bunch of data about your name and your CV and the past four jobs you've had? No, what you really want to do is share who you are and what drives you and what matters to you and what your values are and, you know, what better way to do that than in a text conversation? Um, and what better way to do that than even on the platforms that you use, Facebook, Snapchat, Messenger. So that's really what we've built. We're the only technology globally that allows people to apply for jobs and to be independently, objectively assessed for their fit for the role based on a text Hold conversation. On. So are you assessed for a role based on your Snapchat conversations? No, no. Um, <laughs> part of what we do that's 
quite deeply embedded in science is you've got to ask the right questions, right? So, you know, everyone knows that in recruitment. If you get asked stupid questions like what animal would you be if you could pick your choice, you know, what's they going to tell you and certainly what's they going to tell you about the interviewer? Well, you've got to get to the nut of what really matters for success in that role. So when you're thinking about a sales role, if you ask someone a question like, you know, sales is all about discipline. Tell us how you've brought discipline to your life. Um, and what have you learned from that? You know, that's a question that really makes you think and people want to think. And what's interesting in our space is we work for a lot of organisations who have masses of volumes. You know, they're rejecting people in six figures. They're consumer brands. They care deeply about their experience. And these people really want to express themselves. It's not just us, white-collar types, who want to talk about the values that matter. Actually, people working in retail, you know, in Aldi for 15 bucks an hour, my daughter who works at Hungry Jack's, she would rather have a conversation that's really interesting than submit a CV. So I think there's this humanity to interviewing people in a conversation. The Snapchat is more about the platform. So if you're on Snapchat or you're on Facebook, then why not use that as a way to have that conversation rather than forcing people to go into some teleo <laughs> or workday or success factor system? So, Bob, we, we know that, uh, that quite a few of the AI systems that are around that have been used in hiring have been found to have incredible unconscious bias. Is that a dilemma that has been solved at this point or is it something that we're still trying to work out how to go solve those underlying unconscious biases in our systems? Look, bias can come up at a few different points in the journey for anyone who's worked in the AI space and where you're looking at data. Um, what we do and what other organisations do as well is try and make it as clean and pure and objective as possible up front. And if you're only analysing someone on what they say... Right, without even using voice, by the way. We don't use voice because we think voice is heavily flavoured with cultural assumptions and biases. You know, we're only interpreting how you respond to a question like, what values do you care about? We don't know anything about you. And, you know, what's really interesting with that is, firstly, how confronting it is to the organisation when they start to see the diversity of people coming through. Um, they kind of crave that, but it's still confronting at the same time. Um, and the second is how liberating people feel to know that you're not looking at my CV, that it doesn't matter what school I went to, it doesn't matter if I'm female or good-looking or whatever it might be. There's still bias that can happen by the organisation. We don't control the decision. We're only controlling the top of the funnel process. But what we do is reveal that bias. And some of you might know of this really cool open-source algorithm called NAMSOR, which can translate with really high accuracy your gender and ethnicity from your name unless you've, cho you've chosen to change your whole name. And we don't capture any of that, but we use that to interpret for our clients where is the bias through the funnel. And what we see consistently is there might be 50% women applying, there's 40% of women being hired. There's 40% South Asians applying, there's 20% of South Asians being hired. Now, it's up to them to change that, but that transparency creates accountability um, which is really the best way that you're going to drive behaviour. No amount of diversity training, and trust me, I've been to truckloads, is ever going to make you less biased. No amount of engagement surveys are going to make you more engaged, right, and change your culture. You have to use data to drive change in behaviour. And audience, just so that you get an idea how entrenched bias is in us, Around about 20 years ago, orchestras decided to go get gender balance in the orchestra pit. So they, they were working out how to get gender bias out of the orchestra pit, but they found that they did blind auditions, but the way the gender bias came in was they could hear the footsteps of the women as they approached. And it wasn't enough to just have somebody behind a curtain. It was the fact that their gait as they walked on was a female gait rather than a male gait. And so that they'd gone through iterations, iterations, and what they worked out was sit the person down, get them to play, and then actually bring in the people who were going to do the review because they were the biased ones. And they had to work very hard to get this out. We have no idea what the biases are that we've got. But if you're doing it as something which is data-driven and you can actually go de-bias that set, then we're likely to go get past those biases that might block us from the perfect candidate. So, Mike, I'm going to throw over to you, and we're going to talk a little bit about you must work on things which are biased, but maybe... Yeah. Do you want can to jump I, in? Can yeah, I, yeah, sure, go thought, for it. Oh, maybe, how long do I have to wait? Yeah. I've got some, <laughs> some interjections. I'm really excited about what you're talking about there. And so, so in, the, in the tech industry, we've got, we've got the best devs. We've got the top point whatever devs and they're amazing and we only the best they're the best 
individually based on technical merit. And I'm every day I'm like, no, just it's wrong. And then they might be the best in a room on their own, but in teams, we don't end up with the best teams. So can you tell me a bit more about how that how what you're talking about manifests in in, in, in my world, I suppose, um, and, and I can tell you a few more stories as well because I've got a theory about how to approach that. And when you said objectively and data, I thought, ooh, that sounds like a good idea, but really don't we want to go to an informed, holistic and human subjective approach, which sounds to me like what you're describing with the social media stuff. Because um, I'm thinking if we go on this individual merit path, we're going to end up with the worst teams ever. And by the way, my, my job is kind of to put teams together and I think, okay, we've got individual merit and we've got great devs and we've got great designers and we've got these other things. Not interested. I want to work out, can I journey with my client? Can I journey with the team together? Are we all facing the same direction? Are we good at working together? If we've got about 80% there and we're kind of about 50% okay kind of average technical that's going to be better than the other way around. If we've got the top, you know, whatever percentage of technical skills, but this team doesn't trust each other and doesn't want to journey together, that is going to be a huge disaster. So I'm especially interested in that because I'm setting up teams for clients who pay us a ton of money. I don't want that to fall down as well. So I'm thinking, well, is the path merit or is it about individual merit or is it about the group? How do we measure the group? Um, I don't think there's a quick answer to that. Um, what I would say is that, you know, a big challenge in recruitment is actually knowing what you're looking for. Um, and what this technology does is match an applicant to a success profile within an organisation. And that success profile comes from real data. In our case, it's things like sales performance or NPS. So really what you're doing is genuinely getting a prediction on whether someone or not is going to raise the bar you know, improve the average for that organisation. Really hard to do in white-collar roles where most assessment around performance is very subjective. And, you know, I used to work at the largest digital firm in Australia. We had everyone on the normal distribution in terms of performance ratings, you know, 85% were three and above. Um, but then when it came to churn, we had really high churn at the time and 80% of it was what they call non-regrettable. Happy to see them go. So complete dissonance between how we view people and what we say when they've walked out the door. Um, so what's, I think, impossible is to get to really objective measures of performance, to be honest, because we all tend to look at people and go, oh, I really like them, you know, I want to work with them. What we need to get to is unpacking people. It's the same with choosing your partner, is if we can understand ourselves, if we can understand the person we're talking to, we can all have a really informed conversation and try and get to the right place. You know, that amazing Israeli um, author Yuval Noah Harari has written about how do we face into the reality of algorithms just, you know, determining what we think every day and his advice is know yourself, right? You've just got to build more awareness around who you are, what drives you, you know, in a really honest way and frankly we're not very good at it, like we really aren't unless you're Simon Sinek. So I've got a lot of things to say about Simon Sinek. <laughs> I've written blogs about him. Um, but, you know, so that's what I think data allows you to do. And what comes out of our technology is, again, I'm going to boast for a minute, not me, but the data science team have figured out how do you tell someone's personality and their traits from what they write. You know, 125 words I can tell from looking at Mark's profile who he is, and he can see too. So that's, I think, the pathway to better decision-making data, to drive more awareness, to you know, have a, have a good open conversation. So, listeners, what I love about these sorts of conversations is that we had a, a rough idea of what this would be, but we've actually just got four minds that are trying to jam here. And we've, and we've down, gone down this thread, which is, do we actually understand humans or do we have bias about what humans are about? I'm going to throw over to Kirsten because in the last 18 months, Oracle have gone through, uh, there's been a bit of merger and acquisition. I think there's about 100 different construction tech companies that have now wound up under your umbrella. And when that happens, we go have a conversation. We say, oh, well, we need to go and actually refactor the platforms that they're on. Uh, they have to become very Oracle standards. We need to turn around and that we need to make sure the security policies are the same. But 
there's also a culture that's inside Oracle and there was a culture inside these other organisations and there were people who knew how to team maybe in a, a small dev startup of five people and now they're part of how many million people have we got around the world in Oracle? So Oracle have 140,000 people globally. So it's a nice small boutique company. And um, we were I was with a company called Aconex, which was the world's largest platform for the building construction industry. And so we were acquired by Oracle. Now, we were kind of lucky though because within Oracle there's these what are called global business units and they're like innovation companies. And we were acquired by the construction engineering global business unit. And what was fantastic to see because, you know, you go through it. How many people here have gone through an acquisition? Is anybody? Okay, it's kind of an interesting experience, right? And you don't really know what you're in for. And luckily, we were acquired by a group that had a very similar culture because they were used to dealing with applications and industry that was similar to ours. And so we've been brought into this company and, and we've got all of these different platforms and things that we've kind of had to bring together. But it all comes back to people, right? So the, the name of this podcast is obviously made for people, but everything we do and even what Barb was just highlighting there, whether we're building applications, whether we're dealing with data, everything relates to the people who are building these applications, but the people who also have to interpret the data and the applications that have been produced as well. So I come from a human-centred design methodology background and so everything we do, we're trying to bring that human-centred approach to that as well and saying, what is the behaviour change that we're trying to achieve through what we're creating? That's kind of the mindset that we have to take because ultimately in the construction and engineering industry, we're we're affecting people's lives in the sense of a lot of companies are going under because it's really complex, some of these buildings and things that are being um, created. And there's so much risk that happens, right? So if we can give people the data that minimises that risk and means that these things are built, overall the economy benefits because you're keeping people in their jobs and you're feeding infrastructure and things into economies as well. So what we do, and we feel it's really important, is we are impacting communities and people's lives by what we produce. So... I said I'd talk a little bit about farm tech and what's going on with farms. And I want to dig into that because it tells us a lot about some of the cultural challenges of transformation. There's a a crowd in Emerald, uh, New South Wales, Queensland, Emerald. I forget which state it's in. But they, it was a farmer who was sitting on his half a million, if not a million dollar machine, air-conditioned cabin that kept on breaking down. But this machine did everything on his farm. And he was able to go, he's optimised, so he's made a more efficient status quo that he'd been able to work on in his farm. And he was farming the way that his father farmed and how his father's farmed. And then he saw that there was an opportunity to bring in small robots, basically autonomous vehicles in farms, that then could go do a bunch of those tasks. But the wrong thinking was to think of a mega machine. The right thinking was to go think of distributed machines that were working on an intelligent platform. Distributed machines that were able to go do a limited range of tasks extraordinarily well, 24-7, and that you also then had security supply because you had multiple machines on the farm. They could be changed out because they were standard platform items. They could be actually leased and moved around farms. And they could do everything from individual pollinating, removing weeds. But that's not how his father did it. And that's not how his grandfather did it. And nobody in the community understood what he was doing. And he was actually isolated because the way we've always done things, whether it's, whether it's hiring or whether it's actually the way that bricks are being laid or whether it's the way that farms are working or health that we're going to get into as well, come from these deep patterns that have incredible bias for us. I decided last year to go catch cabs for a month rather than Uber. I wanted to see in the five years had the cab industry actually lifted that they now had a challenger proposition. I'm very interested in the findings. So I identified to all of the people in the cabs that I was actually doing this experiment. And after probably a month, bit over a month, I had only had one cab driver who thanked me for the reconsideration. In general, they berated me for being a prick for the last year or two years and not being their customer and explained how I destroyed their life. The experiment ended, I was disappointed, because the reason for doing the experiment was deeply ingrained in market economics. And there's a thing called the Walmart effect. 
when Walmart goes into a small town, the dollars that are spent at a Walmart go around three times. If they're spent at a mum and dad shop, they go around six to eight times. When a dollar is spent in Uber, 30% of that goes offshore to San Francisco and that dollar goes around the, in, in this case, the Australian economy, three times. If it was spent with a cab driver, it's more likely to go around six times. If we're trying to create a better future for our grandchildren's grandchildren, we have to focus both on economics and convenience. So I was disappointed that the cabs hadn't understood their social licence to provide a service in Australia which was looking after their future benefit and future generations benefit. And we need to work out how to shake them up and say it's not about this overpriced licence that you've got, it's actually you have a role in our society. And that's a hard conversation. So, you know, we've, we know that there's people who are going to be leaders and they're going to turn around and say in the next 10 years, I want to be on the forward part of how we go make things for people, human-centred design, using the latest technologies that are applying for people. And what we know from doing the Design the Boardroom podcast that we launched at Pause last year over, the last, over those last 12 months, the conversations are, the boardroom is ready. It's the middle management that aren't ready. If you're a designer who's working on, on something and you're working on how do you actually make things for people, hold your courage. There is a tribe and there is a movement that's out there, but it's probably not middle management that you need to have a quiet conversation with. It's probably senior management. And the senior management wants to go accelerate the rate of change. They want to accelerate the economic performance of the organisation. It's the middle management who don't have a KPI for that. So if you're going to make anything work in the next 10 years, follow the money, focus on KPIs, and find people who want to be in a tribe like you and go like crazy. Because we know that if we just leave it up to applying raw technology, as you probably experience at Telstra every so often, it's pretty ugly. We've all experienced a crap app. You know, there's more crap apps around than there are good apps. And so what we hope that we can inspire in the, in the audience's mind is that they can accelerate to a better future, which is going to be designed for people. It's going to have those human qualities in it. But it's not going to be something which is just about technology. It's about applied technology. And that's where we're looking at what are the apps of the future is where that applied technology fits in. So, Kirsten, I'm, I alluded to the idea that 12, 18 months ago, you had this cultural thing that was coming in, and it was probably the culture of different operating systems, different development systems. They're easy conversations to have. You can be very orthogonal and say, welcome to Oracle, it now looks like this. How did you deal with the different behaviours that have been built into the apps, and have you dealt with it, or is it still a project where you're working through a huge pain point list? I think when you're dealing with... Um, trying to bring applications together that have been designed from completely quite different philosophies, right? You're dealing with different behaviours that people have, have um, kind of worked into these applications. And so we're basically working through and saying, all you can do is design say, okay, what are the primary things that people are trying to do with this application and how do we make sure that they can actually do that? But what's happening, and it's kind of what we touched on even earlier, is you have to think end-to-end -end across these systems, exactly like when we talked about Shazam or any of the, they haven't just thought about this application taking music, right? They've thought about how do we actually bring that song back? How do we rate that? How do we work with all the record companies to get that music? It's thinking of it as a broader ecosystem. And that's what we have to do with our applications as well. We're kind of saying people are using all these different point solutions. How do we bring all of that data together and make it meaningful, but also make the process seamless end to end? So that's really kind of the focus that we've had to take and say, take a step back and say, what is the bigger picture here? And I think the thing is, when you're dealing with these spaces, is it's really easy to be overwhelmed, right? These things are complex. And you've really got to take a step back and say, okay, let's think of this from a human perspective and just walk it through. What would be the ideal end-to-end -end experience? Let's map that out and then let's get that first piece going. And that's what we've kind of had to bring it back to because otherwise, where do you start? Where do you kind of work through all of these complex webs? And I think you would have had to do that too, Barb, in terms of, like, I know some of the background with Barb's um, company, you had to kind of go back to ground zero and say, what is our value prop and what are we really trying to do here? What did you kind of work through when you were doing that? The user. Yeah. You know, it's all about the person who's touching this and how they feel. Um, you know, this is a business that's been around for a while and it was heavily science-flavoured 
for its early life and it could sell the science, but it couldn't get people to use the science. And in a world of machine learning, explainability becomes really critical. Um, explainability enables trust. Trust is what people need to use it. Trust is what keeps them coming back. Trust that it's right. Um, you know, and this is really radical, right? To, to give a prediction about whether someone's going to be a great hire or not is completely different to how people are used to, to operating. So, you know, really starting with the user experience. In the early days, as an applicant, you used to have to complete 150 multi-choice questions. Now, aside from the fact that, by the way, there's nothing predictive about a product like that, which we discovered when I joined, the other part is it's a pretty crap experience. Um, you're not learning anything, there's no engagement, it's very one-sided, it's very static. As soon as we moved to text, you know, which is so human and relatable and easy for people to do, and, you know, what's amazing is that people share comments is how empowered they feel, you know, the ability to express their voice. And so for people who are introverts, they feel like this works for them. For people who are extroverts, they can write thousands of words. Um, so it kind of works for all different types and it's human. Um, and uh, that was transformational in terms of productizing a science, right? You can't sit in a room and wax lyrical about how amazing your data science team is or the um, predictive validity that underpins your product if no one actually knows what it is and no one really wants to, to trust it, so... And I think that's the bottom line. With whatever we're doing, it always comes back to the user and customer. If, you, if somebody can't use it or somebody doesn't want to buy it, then <laughs> you haven't got a product is the bottom line. And I think that's kind of what we sometimes lose in the sexiness of applications. It's like, oh, this looks really cool. People will go and have a look at it once or twice. But if you're not making a difference to their lives and actually making it more efficient or making something better for them, then they're not going to continue using it and they're certainly not going to buy it. So it's the lens that we continually have to apply when we're making things for people. And earlier at Pause, uh, there was a talk done by Mike Stoddard from uh, Adobe. And Mike was talking about the lift that comes by actually putting creative executions, propositions, into the communication that you've got, not just A-B testing. You know, our role is to excite people's imagination and get them to understand why. We're not just in the what and how business. You know, we, we need to get people to be excited that there's actually some bigger reason for it. And that might be why you go through some transitional pain. Because the idea that, Barb, that you're going to go get the ultimate solution in the next release of your software is zero. Because that's why you have the following release and the following release. You know that you're incrementally, you're improving and you're getting better. But if we start to try to sell people that we've got an ultimate solution, which is only about rationality and about an, an algorithm, we've forgotten the human condition. And you've got to go think in Australia in December. December the 1st in Australia was a very different landscape to January the 1st. On January the 1st, Australia was burning. Inferno Australia was the reality that we woke up to. We had people who were lying on beaches. They were trying to go and actually not die from being burnt. We hadn't even got to the wildlife that had been damaged. The month before, we'd had our Prime Minister who decided that it was okay to go out and spin a story that he didn't need to be the leader, he could be on holidays. And what we needed at that moment was we needed somebody who was going to tell us that they could solve what was going on, not convince us that everything was okay. So the message there for people in marketing is we want solve more than we want convinced today. And you're going to have some great apps that solve things. But don't try to convince us. Just tell us what you've solved. Because we now know how to call BS on people who are trying to convince us. What we want is something which is a mature conversation, which is saying this is what we've solved. We mightn't have solved every problem with what we're doing with predictive hire, but we've solved some of them. And come on the journey with us because we're going to solve those problems faster in the future. And Mike, I know for one of, the, one of the challenges that you have with projects that have been done at Telstra Purple is that they get a finish line written underneath them and there's humans involved with the projects and therefore they need to keep evolving, don't they? Well, it's particularly hard in that we've got um, uh, annual budgeting is a thing. We also work for clients under a, a statement of work, so a commercial agreement. So to say, just keep the tap on, keep a little trickle of money going, which is in all the lean literature about moving from project to product or service thinking, which is which is noble and good. Um, it doesn't marry up to much of how the business operates. So this is why I 
want to take a couple of massive jumps ahead and say, yes, the user, yes. But when you describe the user there, and I do it every day as well, we're talking about building things for users and humans in the human-centred design process as a method of making stuff for our capitalist overlords. What, well, that's a bit dark, isn't what, it? What I, I might not have a job. <laughs> um, but this, this, this grinds me a little bit because we, we continually frame our user-centred thinking around building stuff for people so they'll buy more things or blah, 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 blah. I'd like to back it off and say, well, what about the other way around? The team that I participate in, the work that I do coming here today, this is the goal of my life, the touch points with other humans every single day. This is the goal, not the method. I want to spend time with my family. I want to spend time with cool people. I want to spend time doing meaningful things. And I would say we go along to jobs and other things uh, in pursuit of making that come true. So it's kind of flipping the whole thing the other way around, which brings me back to, okay, well, then we're deconstructing around understanding people more, but maybe not even in that same sense. I'd like to, to understand people at a really human level and then everything else becomes a distant, distant second rather than how do we build a team that can agile and stuff, you know? Who cares? So um, Mike's going to be the next uh, person who's the test pilot on predictive hire here, I think. Uh, no, 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 no. no so, so, and what's interesting there is we need to have conjecture. We need to have the opportunity to be able to say, have we got this balance right? If we're just throwing products at people, then we're trying to go solve a sales schedule. We're not trying to go deal with the human condition and what they need. And Microsoft is a really interesting company over the last five years. They've taken their marketing budget down by two thirds because they worked out if they made products that people liked <laughs> because they worked or they solved, they didn't have to spend so much money convincing them. So we now know the equation is that solve is less expensive than convince. So, you know, we need to be able to actually think of what are we solving. If you're purely a sales and marketing-led organisation, you're probably pissing off your clients. That's technical language for a bad human experience. Um, but you're probably doing that, and what you need to do is get in the ear of your CEO, CFO, have a word to them, and see if they can understand that their future remuneration and their mid-term benefits that they're going to get out of the company comes from solving, not by just trying to convince people and not trying to just throw product at them. And if you can't get that, get on predictive hire. <laughs> but you, you don't know, sell I think your what, services But I think way. what you've touched on there, Mark, is it's a problem with the Australian remuneration systems as well, and American, where the UK, I think, has actually solved this, where CEOs are incentivised five years post their tenure. So they don't actually... So the decisions they're making aren't short-term. They're thinking they're actually getting part of their wage post them leaving the post, right? And that's really critical because how many times have we seen these short-term thinking happen where they think, right, this is... I'm sitting in this seat... And there was a classic with Telstra, let's face it, some of the decisions that Sol Torino made were, were atrocious for Telstra. But he was incentivised for that period of time. And so I think we also need to change some of those systems to make sure that the CEOs and things are thinking long-term for better future versus short-term. And so that goes back to the KPI thing. Sol Torino had a KPI which was get A, you will get B. It was a failed remuneration strategy. If you can begin to get the right KPIs in place, you're going to get the right outcomes. Mm. Earlier I was at breakfast where Melbourne Uni were talking about their Carlton Connect project and one of the uh, faculty leaders was saying, oh, well, it could be difficult. And I just asked a question, how many KPIs have you got to actually make sure that Carlton Connect as a site performs with commercial engagement and commercial leverage? It was like I'd mentioned the plague. Okay, what do you mean? I'm going to, and, I, and I mentioned it as a painful KPI. This is a KPI that will be directly related to the interests that we're ta all talking about, but it may not be easily achievable. That's courageous management. Whereas most management looks after their best interests and they go for soft plays, but what they want is really outstanding results. And the two don't come together. I'll take you into the Olympics. The Olympics is actually a pretty easy KPI. You're on the podium or you're not, okay? Fourth place, 
you didn't actually get anything at the Olympics. You spent four or eight years as an elite athlete and you got nothing out of it. That's a hard KPI. How you get there is how your mindset, your understanding of what the goal looks like, what you have to go sacrifice to get there. This is pain. The audacious goals that hopefully you've got are going to be no different than trying to win a gold medal. If you don't have a vision of what the future is and the purpose of what you're doing and that you're prepared to put yourself under pressure, you're not going to get there in that medium term. So they're, they're really good personal goals. Um, I'm going to actually just do a little cross-promote here for a, present, uh, for a podcast that we've got in the can from a guy named Bracken Darrell, CEO of Logitech. We'll make sure that you go get access to it in the notes from this podcast, but also through pause. Brack and Daryl came into Logitech, they did mice and they did keyboards. They now, that represents 40% of their turnover now. Their share price is up 500% since he took the helm. And he talks about seeds, plants and trees. Keyboards and mice are trees. You've got the plants are things like uh, their video conferencing products and they've got all these other things that they're nurturing as seedlings. He, it is just astounding. It's worthwhile to go listen to. And, you know, he's all about being made for people. He wants to make great products that actually are changing people's lives. He's not so much worried about being a sales-led organisation, which they used to be. He wants to go and actually get the results for his shareholders, those terrible overlords. He wants to get the results for the shareholders by solving future human problems in an awesome way with products that are made for people. Gardening. I love the analogy. There you go. All gardeners. Now, we're going to see if we can actually plant a few seeds in the audience here because we need to ask some questions. You're meant to be asking us questions. Um, so it's Slido. Ask your questions away. We need to surrender one of the mics. So, Barb and Kirsten, you need to go do that. So we've got our first question on Slido. Uh, before we get to that, I do want to plant the seed for the end of the session. Just wanted to ask you if you could distill the wonderful conversation into a message for the audience. We'll come back to that just before we finish up. So questions on Slido. Please jump on if you haven't already. Uh, first one, if hu recruitment is a human business, how do we make data more humanised? Thanks. So it's about understanding what matters when you're making a decision like that. You know, if I bring it back to the personal side, and I'll admit I met my partner on Tinder. <laughs> so Tinder worked for me. We've been together now six years. Um, but, gee, I could have made a really bad decision and I did make a few bad decisions before I found him. And, you know, what really matters, it's at my age, it's someone who's good, decent person, you know, sense of self, et cetera. It's not that different in the recruitment space. Like, there's technical skills, you know, you have to figure out how to assess for that. But at the end of the day, it's what kind of person they are, you know, what are their values, what are the behaviours that drive them. And so the key to doing that, firstly, is actually having the science that can tell you that. So you can go and do a psychometric test and get some psychologist to interpret that for you in a 10-page report and maybe you'll understand it, maybe you won't. Or you can use technology like ours that actually tells you whether someone is resilient, driven, confident, hum um, humble, etc. Those are the kinds of languages that you, ha you use in the conversations you have when you're sitting around the table. Is this person going to fit in a startup environment? I'm kind of laughing on the one hand when I hear you talk about these KPIs because I think come and work in a startup. Um, the only KPI is, am I going to be able to make payroll next week? You know, and I check the bank balance every day. Um, so it's such a world of you have stripped everything back because if you can't make that user love it, trust it, promote it, then you're out of business, right? Forget about five-year plans and five-year KPIs. So it really brings you back to the core of what matters. And that's the same with HR. It's the core of who you are is really what matters. And I think that requires the individual who's making the decision to really think about that. And often hiring managers don't. They just create the opening, fill it, and then move on. But, you know, I think hiring managers, and, you know, there is no such job, by the way, as hiring managers, because you're all doing something else. And most people don't really like that part of their job. But you're the most invested in finding the right person, because that really makes a difference to your team. So how do you get to that? You know, how much effort are you spending on that? And that's how we humanise data is we give you these deep profiles where that person sits relative to the candidate pool, where they sit relative to the job market, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. Ask right. them these questions. Let's, let's sorry. sorry. Sorry, I'm a bit passionate about it. <laughs> couldn't tell, couldn't tell. Thinking about the bigger picture of today's topic on innovation shaping the future, we know that we have enough 
capacity. We make enough things, we have enough factories or whatever that we don't really need to work at all, but we work even more. So what is the technology that's going to shape us living better lives, not working harder lives? So I'm going to challenge the idea that we don't need to work. So the utopian idea was that we were going to get all of these efficiencies that came in our lives and then it meant that we didn't need to work and we'd have lots of recreational time. What that missed was that the capital that had actually benefited from those innovations wasn't in my hands. So I still need means to go and actually live my life. And those means come through exchanging my time and my, and my intelligence to earn money. So we thought that the future was going to be evenly distributed. History told us it wasn't going to be. We just all believed that it was going to be a great ride. It's still not going to be evenly distributed. So, so I think the idea that we're going to have more time to go do nothing in particular is not there. But the idea that we might be able to have more purposeful time is really important. And that's where some of the apps that come in who allow us to go do things which actually are efficient from time, but they might be robbing us from some of the human experience. It's important that we understand we also need to make time for things that keep us human, keep us connected, and keep us the thing that is just dynamic about being a human on an algorithm. I think it's also that applications and tech has enabled, you know, we talk about this mythical work-life balance, right? And every, anybody who's got family and kids and all the rest of it, you know, the, the jungle. But what enables you to do is to be able to go and spend the morning at your, your child's school, right? And be able to still be connected and not have to necessarily be in the office, be there working all the time. So I think technology has enabled people to extend their lives into things that matter to them as well and to support those kind of environments. Can, can I add something? Um, I'm kind of the naysayer. I'm a bit of a nihilist as well, in case you can't tell. Overlords, yeah. So the, uh, ownership is what's going on there, and we're never going to solve the big picture in the short term. Some catastrophe will happen and some, some reorganisation will occur. But in the meantime, you need to fight every battle every day. When you get up, do the right thing for you do the right thing for humans. And so I even worry about the technology that allows me to go to my children's school and blah, 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 but there's some asshole messaging me, wanting a response, and I say no. I say, this is my time. I'll manage my own time. Fortunately, we're all knowledge workers and we can kind of do that. We do have a luxury that we can, can do that and manage our own time. But I think in any case, you need to set the boundaries and not let those slip on the day and by the minute, right? So when I'm at the school, I'm not talking to people. And I decide when people talk to me. So that leads quite nicely into another question, which is we seem, seem to be living more stressful lives. So how do, can we use technology? How is it going to shape living more stress-free lives? Has anybody done Headspace? What an amazing application. <laughs> I just feel zen when I'm doing that for 10 minutes <laughs> and then don't. I think it's... um. If anything, though, it's it's really interesting. I was just talking to somebody last night who was telling me about their sleep patterns because they've got the app that tells them whether they snore at night and everything. And I said, okay, so how has that actually changed your life? And they said, oh, well, I just know that I snore. And I'm like, okay. So what have we taken from that? But it's it's I think it's... Again, it's back to your point, Barb, with data. It's informing you and then you're able to make decisions about that. So is it going to remove all the stress? I think stress is one of those things that people just handle differently and you have to, if, if anything, we get more information now to be able to make decisions about how we're going to be handling that stress. And I think if you know, if you've got a vision, values and purpose, a personal one that is, not necessarily a corporate one, your stress level can be lower because you've got an idea where the, this anchor in the future is and that you're just trying to swing off that anchor but you're slowly getting there. It's the people who are struggling to go have an understanding of their values and their purpose who get really stressed because change has been done at them, not for them. Cool. We have another question. Uh, it sounds like the future is based on caring about humans and their inherent value, yes. which seems like... A good that, thing? Yes. Where did it go wrong is the question. <laughs> so can we ask, your name is? Steve? Steve Clayton from? Toowoomba. Toowoomba, okay. So it's interesting, a country person understands the idea of caring for community and has brought that up. Go for it, Mike. Oh, just my whole new philosophy has been recently, I've got this working thing. Everyone's seen the value proposition canvas, circle square? Yeah. Yep. Okay, circle square. 
there's a square. I'm trying to relate it to my relationship with my wife. And I'm going, am I the circle or am I the square, right? Am I the shop or the customer? And I'm getting upset about it. Thank you. Um, the problem with that is it's, it's two circles. And so the, the job of the square is to interject as the organisation that facilitates a place and a space so that we may care for one another. And if we go back to Deming, the number one thing from Deming is we ensure that the system is, is a, a enabling that all staff and all employees can have pride in their work. Pride and care go so hand in hand. So, I, yes, the C word, the good C word. <laughs> and, and so there's... There's some also cultural aspects there. Because I work between old world and new world countries, I get to go see the stark difference between a win-lose philosophy, which is very much new world countries, and a win-win, which is old world countries. And so Australia being a, a young country, many people created their wealth because they got a non-meritoriously based advantage. So if they in a deal, they don't know how to do win-win because they know somebody lost because they won. And that takes that bias takes generations to get out. Whereas I go to Europe and I'm working with people in Europe and everyone's focused on this. Of course, we all need to win. Because although I mightn't be getting what I want out of the deal, you need to actually survive and you need to thrive because you're not going to actually do a deal with me in the future and that's inefficient. And that brings us back to why the UK would have sorted out the five-year remuneration for CEOs and the US and Australia are still in just one, you know, cycle. Australia is very much win-lose, okay? There's lots of people in Australia who didn't make their wealth through a meritocracy-based initiative. Squatters, settlers, people who've got an unfair advantage and now they've got, they've got money, they don't know how to keep that money. They don't know how to regenerate it. And so all they can do is actually think, I am going to lose. And if you're trying to do a deal with somebody whose mindset is either I win or I lose, that's a, that's a really hard conversation to have. And that's not everybody, but it's enough people in the, in the market that it pollutes the behaviour. It only takes one arsehole in a deal, not two arseholes. Great. We have time for one more question, then I'll bring it back around to the, the final messages you want to leave. So we talked about farm tech, construction tech, whatever. Are there any other up-and-coming areas that are really going to shape the future, like medicine? So medicine has always been done at us. It's going to change. It's going to be done for us. That means that the control of medicine goes from the doctor down to the patient. And when the, when the control of medicine becomes, I am the only person that's interested and invested in my future health. I am one of 10,000 for a doctor. So you have to change that sovereignty of who, who actually owns my future health. And at the moment, we've got people who are relying on a technician to go and actually think about my future well-being and health. That innovation, that change is going to be phenomenal. But because health is tied up with government regulation, it's actually encumbered by privacy issues where privacy is probably holding back health benefits than actually protecting health benefits. We've got a quite a long journey there, but health will change and the people who want to participate in the, in the future of their own health will have more options than they've ever had before. Okay. Anything else from the panellists or anything, any yeah, other areas? I think around, we're seeing really amazing technology come through for accessibility as well and supporting people with different needs. And some of the things that we've seen in, you know, with hearing and vision, and it's, that's where it's really exciting. I think it's something where, again, it's purposeful technology and making a difference to people's lives where there was an application, I remember we reviewed Mark, where um, I think it was Be My Eyes was yep. the name of it. And so people from all around the world, you can, as a vision impaired person, you can come onto this network and basically say, is somebody available to look for me? And they take their phone and somebody comes online and can talk you through something and see something in your apartment. And the people were talking about the difference it was making for their lives. Older people, we're, we're in, got massive ageing populations. And there's amazing tech now supporting this 
ageing population as well and providing, um, you know, company. We've seen some fantastic bots where you think, again, what are these ro robots going to do? And there's this fantastic technology where they've gone and created human-like robots that are sitting with older people and keeping them company. And the older people aren't seeing them as a robot. They're seeing them as a companion. Yeah, and that's it's, the, it's just amazing. That's the LEQ project that yeah. came out of Fuse Project in, um, in the US, an Israeli-based tech startup company. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. But, yeah, we're seeing that our future is actually going to be augmented by the things that create the human moment. It's not going to be augmented by things that are just technology. Mm. Great. Uh, Barbara, I know you don't have a microphone. Do you want to add anything? You don't have to? No, that's fine. <laughs> so final words from everyone. What's the message you want to leave everyone with? Accelerate to a better future for your grandchildren's grandchildren. Um, there's a quote... Um, it's quite well known. In, in, in God we trust, in everything else we bring data. Uh, I think it needs to be challenged. I would say in data we trust. For the rest of stuff, go and seek out your own God. Oh, uh, sorry, um, I was just agreeing. It was amazing. Um, the philosopher Hume said, reason is and ought only be slave to the passions. And obviously that's me. Yes. So probably it needs a little bit of simplification and translation. So in every piece of work you're doing and every work, every, um, every day and every project I'm involved in, especially with a large enterprise, I'm thinking about how do I make machines the slave of man and not the other way around? And that's my mantra. That's my goal. It could be Telstra's goal. It should be your goal. I think ultimately where, you know, where people talk about this mythical, when they get it or when this organisation gets with the picture work, Ultimately, it all comes down to us, right? You can control what you're doing at this point in time and have that mindset of saying, I'm making a difference for the people and things who are going to use my product or work with this product. And so I think it's continually bringing a people mindset to what you do. And this is a long industry, right? I've been doing, making products and services for 25 years now. And you find that people have long memories as well. So approach this with a people mindset and thinking about the people you're working with and connecting with and trying to make people's lives better. And I think ultimately you will. That's all we can do. All right, thank you, everyone. Before we finish up, where can we find the podcast? So the podcast could be found if you search for Driven X Design or, or look for Better Future in iTunes, Spotify. Just Google it. There you go. We'll surrender to Google. Um, that's a place to find it. Audience, thank you here, our live audience, and uh, thank you to the panel. This has been such a gift, and uh, we look forward to having you as a subscriber to the Driven by Design podcasts. Please give the panel a round of applause.